I'm going to ask you as you're seated, if you would put your books down, your Bibles down, whatever it is that you've got in your hand, your phones, put them down. Don't just put them down. Put them down and turn them uh, upside down so that you're not looking. And I want everybody to look up here for just a minute. Put your, put your hands down. Like, let's pretend we're in kindergarten. Put your hands in your laps and everything else and, and look this way for just a moment. Uncomfortable, isn't it? Tough to sit still, to sit quietly for a moment. Goes against everything we're about nowadays. We're so geared, we're so wired, so into being connected that for us to sit and stop and be quiet, silence bothers us. Stillness bothers us. See, we've created a national ADD where uh, none of us can focus anymore because we're so distracted by everything around us. Is it any wonder that so many believers have a difficult time hearing from God? Is it any wonder that so many of us struggle with trying to figure out what God wants us to do when we're not slowing down enough to listen to Him? Psalms 46.10, which that video reference says, Be still and know that I am God. But yet we're never still. Now how hard it is to hit a moving target. And then when we are still, we come to church for just a few minutes and we decide to give God, we'll give, give God just a few minutes and, and, and we won't think about other stuff. We'll just give God just a few minutes and we come and, and it's kind of like a dog trying to get a drink out of a fire hydrant. It's just shooting at us and we're trying to catch stuff and we say, I'm not used to this. Why? Because we're not used to being still. We're not used to allowing God an opportunity to speak to us in a still, small voice. We never slow down enough. In 1965, a group of scientists and sociologists went before the Senate. In a Senate subcommittee, they testified that the future was incredible for the American worker. Matter of fact, they said it is going to be better than anything you could ever imagine. They predicted that by 1985, just 20 years away, that the work week would shrink from 40 hours to 22 hours. And they predicted that Americans would be able to retire on average at the age of 38 years of age by 1985. They predicted we would have more leisure time and more relaxing vacation time than ever before. But yet here we sit, 50 years after that prediction, 30 years after 1985, when that was supposed to come true. And, and in reality, we are working harder than ever before. How did they make that prediction? What did they say was going to happen? They said it was going to be the new technology. They said the computer age is going to usher in a time of relaxation in America. That somehow the computers that were coming along and technology that was going to come along was going to do our work for us. And it was going to free us up to not have to work so hard, to not have to be so busy. Yet 50 years later, we work harder than ever before. And technology has advanced beyond anything they ever imagined in 1965. 
Matter of fact, most of you on your watches or especially on all of your phones, you have more computer technology there than they had that sent the man to the moon in 1969. And it was a room three times this size full of computers. You have that on your watch or on your phone. And yet we work harder. See, the reality is that the work week hasn't shrunk. It's gone from 41 hours to 48 hours on average. We, re- we relax on average 37% less today than we did as Americans in 1970. 37% less. Retirement, if you, those of you that are close to retirement, you know it's not going down, it's going up. So how did this committee miss it? What, what, what in their plans, in their schedules, in their ideas did they miss this prediction so widely. You see, they failed to take into account the appetite of the American consumer. Because you see, if you go and study history from the individualism of the 1960s, we moved into the late 70s, early 80s into materialism, and then to the 90s into consumerism. And technology did make it easier. Technology did make our jobs easier. They made our lives easier. But what happened is when technology began to free up time for us, we decided that more free time would give us more opportunity to make more money. So instead of taking an opportunity to use that free time, we just got busier. Because making more money required more time. And so we began to become consumers and materialistic and it began to wrap our lives up. And today, many of you work so many jobs, you do so much that you find yourself coming and going and don't even know which way it is. Some of you have so many plates spinning, you can't even describe all the things you do within a week. And we wonder why we don't hear from God. We wonder why our nation is turning away from God. We wonder why we have powerless Christians filling our churches. We wonder why we don't see miracles, why we don't see incredible things happening on a regular basis where Christians are making a difference. It's because we're not stopping and listening. With that in mind, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're starting a new series on the Sermon on the Mount. And for us to be able to get to a place where we could actually appreciate and understand the power of this word, it's going to require that you and I slow down. You see, in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to go back and look at Matthew's gospel, the first two chapters, Matthew incorporates the birth narrative. You have the the genealogies in chapter 1, and then you have uh, chapter 2, the birth of Jesus, and their flight to Egypt. And then in chapter 3, we start the public ministry of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Jesus, many people believe, was 30 years of age, and so there's about uh, 20 years that we don't know, 25 to 26 years, We don't know what was going on with Jesus' life. He was living life. He was helping his dad as a carpenter. He was helping raise his brothers and sisters, if you believe he had brothers and sisters as I do. He was helping his mother around the house. And then at 30 years of age, he came across his cousin, John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, it describes his encounter with John the Baptist and his baptism. And it was at his baptism that he starts what we call his public ministry. And then Matthew, in chapter 4 of Matthew, he describes Jesus going out into the wilderness and enduring 40 days of temptation. You see, Jesus was tempted in that 40 days in every way that you are tempted. But he rejected the temptation of the devil. 
where we get him saying, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then later in chapter 4, Matthew begins to tell of how Jesus begins his public ministry. He preaches his first sermon in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and it's a short one. All he says is this, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He preached John the Baptist's sermon. He began to take up the mantle of John the Baptist. And at the end of chapter 4, he begins to recruit disciples. And in some of the other Gospels, this is a longer narrative, but Matthew just has a short story. He talks about uh, Andrew and Peter, the two brothers being recruited. Then James and John, the two brothers being recruited. And then he begins to take them and travel throughout Galilee. And as he's traveling throughout Galilee, he's talking and teaching, he's healing people. People begin to follow him. People begin to come and crowds begin to gather. And that is the context for where we find Matthew chapter 5. And so in Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, those are him following him, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He begins the sermon and he begins it with a prelude which we know as the Beatitudes. But I want you to notice what he did first. See, as the crowds were following Jesus, he didn't, he didn't turn around and begin to wade into the crowds and heal them. He didn't, he, he didn't start teaching from right where he was. He, he didn't begin to, to go down to them. Instead, he turned and went up to the mountain. Because you see, before he could talk to the masses, he needed the mountain. And in Old Testament imagery, every time we have a picture of the mountain, it represents getting away to be alone with God. It represents a holy place. When Moses needed to be with God, he went to the mountain. When Elijah needed to be recharged, he went to the mountain. Psalms 24 says, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may worship on your holy place? Going to the mountain. And so Jesus recognized that before he could ever begin to teach, he was going to have to call the people to a mountain. And you see what that symbolizes is a breaking away of where you are. And this morning for us to begin to understand this incredible sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher there ever was, we're going to have to stop and separate from where we are and go to the mountain. Because you see, the mountain represents rest. The mountain represents you pausing and moving on with Him. Jesus calls us to the mountain. He calls us out of our hectic lives. He, he calls us out of our busyness. He calls us out of all of our, our stuff that we're doing and asks us to come to the stillness of the mountain with Him. You see, by Jesus going to the mountain, what He was saying is you need to turn your back on the noise of the world. Stop for just a moment and come and sit with Him. You see, the reason most Christians don't hear from God isn't because you've tuned Him out. It's just that you've got so much other noise in your life that you can't hear Him. It overwhelms His voice. You've got so many other voices in your head, so many other people talking to you, so many other things going on that when God speaks, you don't recognize it. It's time to go to the mountain for many of us. You see, God's mountain is a place where His Spirit dwells. It's a place where the noise and the busyness of the world is separated. It's there that we can sit down and be attentive to the Father. See, what I want to suggest to some of you this morning is you need to stop. You need to slow down. See, so many Christians say, Pastor, 
What can I do to be a better Christian? What can I do to, to enhance my relationship to God? What can I do to, to, to grow in my faith and to have more faith and to be able to stand out on faith? Well, the first thing that you need to do before you get busy in trying to do the things of God is to stop and spend time with Him. Stop and listen to Him. See, what happens to us is we get so busy and, and we decide what we want to do and we get over here and we start doing it. This is what I want. And we say, God, come on. God, this is where we're going. And God is over here saying, no, listen. I'm telling you to come this way. Not to be mean, not to keep you from what you're doing, but to protect you. This is the safe path. This is the path of blessing. This is where I'm calling you to. But we don't hear him. And then we get out here on our own and we wonder, we say, God, where are you? God, you said you would always be with me. God, you said, and God's saying, listen, I'm with you, but I'm calling you to me. The first thing you need to do is to stop and be still and go to the mountain with God and hear him. Matthew tells us that Jesus sat down to teach, which was a place of authority. He always sat down to teach. Just the opposite of what we do. When we want to get people's attention, we stand up. And in those times, when they wanted to get somebody's attention, they sat down. And tradition holds that this mountain, this sermon, we didn't call it the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we call it. Tradition holds that it was on a mountain outside of Capernaum, which is near the Sea of Galilee, in what is called the Hill of Hattons. And this hill we can now go to where they believe the Sermon on the Mount took place. And it's just a small little hill. It's not like some of the mountains we have here. It's just a little hill. But it was a hill that had a deep pocket that created somewhat of an amphitheater. But for these listeners to hear, and, and tradition holds that there was probably between three and 5,000 people. So that's a pretty good crowd. For them to hear Jesus teaching, he didn't have a microphone and, and slides and, and everything else. He was on his own and he sat down. And you can imagine as they gathered around to hear, the only way they could really hear him is if they were still and silent. And some of them even had to press in. So I could see them leaning in saying, i, I got to catch it all. You see, when you begin to sit in the stillness that is the presence of God, you're drawn to press in. When's the last time you were so still that you heard his voice and it caused you to press in harder? Jesus was about to rock their world. He was about to introduce a radical new concept about the kingdom of God. And every person that was on that mountain was changed. I just want you to think about it for a minute. In the Old Testament, when the law was given, when God brought the law down, God came down to man. But here we have Jesus doing what? Going up to God, and he's not going up alone. What's he doing? He's taking man with him. When the law came down, do you remember what happened in, in Moses when he's going up to get the Ten Commandments? There was thunder and lightning, and the people down in the valley knew something's going on up there, and they got scared. But here there's not lightning and there's not thunder. There is peace and grace, and mercy, and people are hungry to hear. You see, he's turning their paradigm on its head. When the law came, people were told to keep their distance. You didn't, you didn't go in front of the law. It was holy. It was separate. But here Jesus is saying, come to me. Draw into me. And unfortunately, from that day to today, so many in the church have spent so much time, effort, and energy to try to explain what Matthew 5, 6, and 7 
means isn't what Jesus said it means. You see, we've gotten real good at trying to say that, you know, this is great teaching and these Beatitudes are pretty incredible and they're pretty powerful. But Jesus didn't really mean what he says it means. Even in the early church, even a hundred years after Jesus preached this, they had already taken the Sermon on the Mount and said, it's not really guidelines or ideals, it is more of a law. You see, this is a list of rules they believe that you have to follow to be more spiritual. They began to say that, that they, this, like the Old Testament Jewish law, these New Testament laws that Jesus gave help us become righteous. You see, this is how you become right with God. But then they established by about 350 that, that no, everybody couldn't do that. It's almost impossible to try to live this in your own power or strength or even with the help of God. And so they said only certain people, and they, they separated out and said those that separate themselves from the world, and they created the monastic orders, you know, the monks. Go live on a hill. You guys try to live this way. The rest of us just can't live this way. And then about 500, the reformers came along. And the reformers said, wait a minute. If it's good for one person, it's good for everybody. It's not, you can't just say this is only for a select group of super Christians. If this is Jesus' teaching, then it's good for all of us. But what they did is they twisted this idea of grace around. The reformers wanted to teach grace, but they twisted and corrupted it to a place of saying, this didn't make you holy, this was how you proved you were holy. See, this didn't, following this list of rules didn't make you spiritual, but it did help you prove that you were spiritual, so you had to follow it. Because if you weren't following it, then nobody would know you were spiritual. What they did is they just twisted the legalistic rules again, the same way that Jesus was trying to get rid of them to say, we've got a new set of rules. Now, we've learned for the past couple of weeks that God calls us to freedom. When you accept Jesus Christ, you've been set free from the list of rules, from regulations, from, from all of those things that somehow the world thinks will make you spiritual. What makes you spiritual is not what you do, it's what Jesus did. And it's you receiving what Jesus did and applying it to your life. But they were confused. And then the Orthodox Protestants came along and, and they just said, listen, this is just, God never intended for us to live this way. The reformers came along and said, listen, we can't live this way. God never intended for us to live this way. This is just a way for us to look and see how really despicable we are apart from God. You see, this was just meant kind of like the Old Testament law for a way for us to understand you and I need God and apart from God, we'll never be holy. They didn't use it as an indication of a way to live. They used it as an indication of how we're supposed to be needing God. And then in more recent years, an interpretation has risen up. And they've said, wait a minute. Jesus meant what he said, every word. Jesus said that this is how we're supposed to live. And he meant it. But the problem is, he doesn't mean it for today. He meant it for that time. See, Jesus' word, he was saying that they need to live that way. They just need to live that way 2,000 years ago. Surely Jesus didn't intend for us to live this way today. He was talking about a specific time because why in the world would Jesus say that we're supposed to love our enemies? He, he surely didn't know about terrorists. He didn't know about how hateful the world would get. He didn't know about the, the Nazis and he didn't know about all the Holocaust we saw in the 20th century. So surely Jesus didn't really mean we need to love our enemies. Surely Jesus didn't mean that we need to refrain from lust. I mean, back in his day, the women were covered from head to toe, right? They were wearing robes. It had to be easy not to lust. 
But today, I mean, we ain't got the standards. People wear around and out what you couldn't wear on the beach 10 years ago. Jesus surely had to understand that lust was going to be an issue. And surely he didn't say we aren't supposed to lust. That's for back then. And so we excuse away all of these teachings and say they're not relevant anymore. It's a good set of rules for Jesus' time. Then there's a more modern, more recent interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. You see, they say it's not for something in the past, it's for something in the future. The dispensationalists say, listen, this is a good teaching, but he's not really talking about what we're supposed to do now. He is talking about how we are going to live when Jesus comes back and establishes a new kingdom and a new heaven and a new earth, and then we will be able to live this way. I want you to hear me. All of those interpretations have been presented by good Christian men and women. Some of you probably have even heard pastors teach some of them. I have. They sound good and they sound reasonable, but they were all formulated for one reason and one reason alone, to take the sting and conviction out of Jesus' words. See, all of those interpretations help us understand that, that we're not doing so bad. We're okay because we don't live this way. If we don't implement these things in our lives, then, then we're doing okay because it was just for Jesus' time. Or it was just a, a, a guideline. See, I wonder this morning what would happen if instead of rationalizing away or looking at the Sermon on the Mount as some kind of antiquated, quaint teaching, we actually applied the Word of God to our everyday lives. I wonder what would happen if some believers, if just one radical crazy believer decided that this was the words of Jesus speaking to their heart and they said, I'm going to strive to apply these things to my life. I wonder what would happen in the church if instead of thinking that this kind of lifestyle is radical, and let's be honest, when people start trying to live the words of Christ, what do we say about them? They're radical. Right? And that's where we are in the church today. You see somebody trying to live by God's moral standard, trying to apply God's word to their life. What do we think? Well, those guys are just, they're just Jesus freaks. They're just out there. That's just the exception. What if in the church, instead of this teaching being radical and being the exception, we made it the norm that we loved our enemies? That we stopped worrying about things and let God be in control. That we began to give out to those that are in need when they ask for help instead of rationalizing. That we sought to be mournful and poor in spirit, to be meek, to be humble, to keep our mouths closed about the things that don't matter. What do we sought to make these principles a part of our lives? What would that look like? Well, I can't answer. Because for the last 2,000 years, this teaching has made us so uncomfortable and nervous that we have failed to apply it. Because you see, when you begin to live this way, people will take notice. Because it's so different than the standards of today's world. You see, listen to me. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's not a set of rules, it's not a set of laws, it's not a guideline to help you become more spiritual, it's not a guideline to help you prove how spiritual you are. Christ didn't plan on us just bringing a new set of rules and a new set of law to replace the ones that He got rid of. 
You need to remember that up until this time, the kingdom of God to the people in the Old Testament was always something that was the top rung. See, the kingdom of God was always something you worked to and you kind of climbed the ladder to get to the kingdom of God and to be what the kingdom of God calls you to. And the rungs on that ladder were following the rules. The 720 rules that they had taken the Ten Commandments and expanded them out to by the time of Jesus. And as you followed those rules, you got more spiritual and you got closer to the kingdom of God. And then all of a sudden Jesus sits down on this mountain and he says, wait a minute, you got it wrong. You're looking in the wrong direction. You see, the kingdom of God is not up there. It's right here. You don't get there by climbing a ladder. That doesn't qualify you. You get there by repenting and accepting me. See, it's not a set of rules to make you more spiritual because there's nothing you can do to make yourself more spiritual. You can have a deeper walk with God. You can be more conformed into the Holy Spirit, but you're not going to be more spiritual because the moment you accept Jesus Christ, you are as spiritual as you're going to become. You become justified in the kingdom but you can become sanctified and become holy and to become more like Christ. See, the truths found in the Sermon on the Mount can't be lived out in your own power. Here's what I believe the Sermon on the Mount is. Here's what I'm going to teach you for the next several weeks or months. You see, I believe this teaching in Matthew 5, 6, or 7 is a self-portrait of Jesus Christ. I believe what Jesus was giving us was what it would look like if God came and lived inside of a man, inside of a man's body. This is how they would live. And we know it because Jesus walked it for the next three years after he taught this sermon. He lived it out. He walked it. But here's the catch. If this is what it looks like for God to live in a man in Jesus' self-portrait, the Bible says in Romans 8, 29 that you and I, when we accepted Jesus Christ, began to be transformed into His image. I want you to hear me. If we are being transformed in the image of Christ, and these three chapters tell us what Christ lived like and looked like, what does that mean for us? You see, when you accepted Christ... When you repented of your sin and gave Christ your heart, the Holy Spirit came in and began to work in you, and He began to change you from the inside out. Now, I know a lot of churches like to try to change you from the outside in. We decide that if you dress this way and act this way and do these things, that somehow that's going to change the inside. That's not the way God works. That's the way religion works. God says, when I come, the Holy Spirit's coming inside of you, and you'll know He's there, and He will begin to change your thoughts, and He will begin to change your heart, and those heart and that thoughts that are changing will begin to change you. And all of a sudden, you become more like Jesus Christ. See, He's not changing you so that you can be acceptable to God, because you're already acceptable to God. Please understand me. None of this has anything to do with God loving you more. You can keep all of these precepts, all of these teachings that we're going to talk about. You can live and walk the Beatitudes, and God is not going to love you any more than He did the day He found you in the pig trough running from Him. Because He doesn't love you because of what you do. He loves you because of who you are. You're His child. 
You see, what happens is the Holy Spirit begins to change you and you begin to look and act and talk more like Jesus. And the world around you begins to take notice. Because they say, that's not the way Rusty used to act. It's not the way Rusty used to talk. Rusty wouldn't have done that, no. Because Rusty is getting out of the way and letting Jesus make more decisions. See, we learned from Ephesians chapter 5 last year when we walked through it that being filled with the Holy Spirit isn't about getting something extra. It's not about you getting more of something. It's about God getting more of you. And you see, the more you get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit do His work, the more He transforms you. And the more He transforms you, the more filled you are with the Holy Spirit. And the more filled you are with the Holy Spirit, guess what? The more you look like Jesus. And the more you look like Jesus, the more you look like the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. 6 and 7, the more those things become a part of your life. You see, the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, describes the evidence of a life yielded to the Holy Spirit. They're not something produced by a Christian. They're something produced in a Christian. It reveals what people look like when they are surrendered to the Holy Spirit. See, this is what I look like. This is what I think. This is how I live when I'm totally submitted to the will of God, when I'm yielded completely to the Holy Spirit's leadership. They're not standards for me to achieve. You see, it's not a list of rules. It's a yardstick. See, it's a mile marker. It helps me determine where I am in my walk. As you read through this and you look and you say, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. You start reading through that. That becomes a yardstick for me to look at my life and say, Rusty, are you meek? Do you mourn? Are you merciful? If not... It's not time for you to go out and try to do more. It's time for you to look inside your heart and see where you hadn't submitted to the Holy Spirit that's keeping you from being that way. That doesn't mean you can't add practical. Listen, in the next couple of weeks, as we st- I'm going to give you some practical application. I'm going to say, this is some things you can do to help you worry less, to help you learn to love your enemy, because it does require effort on our part. But the first step, the first effort that it requires is that you submit to the Holy Spirit. You tell Him what I told Him in my first prayer. Have your way with me. God, I know I'm not meek. I know I'm not humble. I know I'm proud and arrogant. Show me what I need to get rid of. Show me what I need to give you to make me more like you. Holy Spirit, and and listen, I dare you to pray this prayer. But please don't pray it if you're not ready to get an answer. Don't come to me next week and say, Preacher, God beat me up this week if you pray this prayer. Because if you pray it, I promise you he'll respond. I dare you say, Holy Spirit, show me. If he's really in charge, say, Holy Spirit, shine your light this week. Show me how I can be more like Jesus. Show me where I'm getting in the way and people can't see Jesus because I'm not deciding that I'm not going to submit that area of my life to God. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of what God looks like when He's in control. It's God shining through you and I. 
My prayer for the next couple of weeks is, I don't want this just to be a sermon series. We, we do sermon series. I don't want it to be another, just something to put on a podcast. You come church. I want it to be life-changing. Because see, here's the catch. If you can begin to submit yourself to the Holy Spirit, you'll be a better dad and a better mom and a better husband and a better wife and a better son and daughter and a better person a better friend. Because instead of getting out over here on your own and getting mad at God because you feel like He's abandoned you, you'll find yourself walking in the way of the Lord. And the Bible says that, in Matthew 5, is the place of blessing. Blessed are. It's a place of peace. It's a place of power. Because you see, when all of a sudden you're submitting to the Holy Spirit, you know what you stop saying? You stop saying, I can't. Because when you're out over here, I can't doesn't cut it. Because it's not about what you can and can't do. Because the Bible says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not about me anymore. It's about Him. And I can. The Bible says if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could look at a mountain, it would move. That wasn't hyperbole. Jesus wasn't just throwing out statements and saying, listen, man, if you could do that, Jesus was speaking truth. Think about that. A mustard seed is so small you couldn't see it in my finger. Jesus said if you had that much faith, mountains would move at your command. When's the last time you moved mountains? Some of you are facing mountains this morning. Mountains of debt. Mountains of anger. Mountains of bitterness. Mountains of hate. Mountains of disappointment. Why not speak to that mountain this morning? you can't do it on your own. Before we submit to the Holy Spirit, it's going to require that we slow down. 